All right, let's take a look here at Genesis chapter 9 this morning. You'll have to put a tape in there. As we've learned, the choice of Adam and Eve to disobey God impacted the destiny of the whole human race. And that one act produced a sin nature inherited by everyone. The race became so tainted that God destroyed all but one family, led by righteous Noah, who found favor in the eyes of God. He walked with God and was characterized by obedience during the ordeal of the flood until he and his family finally stepped out into that new world. We would hope and expect that Noah would continue in that path of righteousness and obedience, but like all men, he too sinned. And the only incident recorded of Noah after the flood is this one of moral laxity. Like the first Adam, the second Adam also fell. <clears throat> the two narratives really kind of parallel each other. You'll remember that in the first, the Lord planted a garden <clears throat> which bore all kinds of fruit. Eve looked upon the only forbidden fruit, and she and Adam ate of it, and immediately they felt the shame of their nakedness. And their action resulted in a curse, but also a gracious blessing of God in the promised seed of victory. Noah planted a vineyard. He ate of its fruit, he became drunk, and his act resulted in shameful nakedness, resulting in a curse on Canaan and a blessing upon Shem and Japheth. And it even impacted the development of future nations of the world, as we'll see in chapter 10. Now, this brief story reveals to us how our actions affect our destiny. Noah only messed up one time in the biblical record, but his failure presented a moral test to his sons that wasn't really necessary. However, the main focus of the passage is not really on Noah's failure. It's the reaction of his sons to it. They, in turn, are cursed or blessed according to their responses. We, too, are responsible for how we respond and react to moral laxity of others. And our attitudes and actions often have long-lasting effects for good or for evil on future generations. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are thankful today for your goodness and your grace in spite of the fact that we are sinful creatures. And Lord, we're thankful that there are many saints in the Bible like Noah who overall lived a completely righteous and obedient life. Yet, Lord, we know that even men like Noah failed as we do. And through that failure, Lord, uh, you brought about cursing and blessing. 
Noah failed and affected one of his sons. That son continued to fail and uh, produce a nation of people that totally defied who you were. And Lord, we pray we learn the lesson that our lives affect others. Our decisions affect, ourself, affect ourselves and affect others. And we need to trust in you to help us to walk in a way where we'll escape cursing and we'll fall under your blessings. Bless your word to our hearts, we ask today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning as we look at these verses, let's consider Noah's fall and his son's response to that fall. And our lesson today begins with an epilogue. It kind of connects us with what's gone before and introduces us to what is going to follow in the, uh, the uh, descent of Noah's sons in chapter 10. Now the sons of Noah <clears throat> went out of the ark were three, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. So right from the beginning, we're introduced with what ends up being a curse upon this person, Canaan. And at this time, uh, uh, these men are full grown. We know they went into the ark, all married men. They had no children at that time. Uh, The ark took a hundred or more years to build. And we know then that these men are close to a century old, older than everybody here. And we're told in the next chapter, I think, or or chapter 11, rather, uh, that one of them is that old. We know that they've had a godly example to follow. We know that they're in a place in their life where their character traits have been fully developed. And they've been able to see the life of their father in the contrast to the depravity of the world in which they live, which led to the flood. So these men are without excuse in the way that they live. And we're introduced now to Ham, who's the father of Canaan, and later the curse is going to fall on Canaan. And the thrust of the passage is then on the differences between Ham's decision, Ham's action, and that of his brothers, Shem and Japheth. Now, this whole faithful incident begins with Noah's moral laxity. We're told here in verse 20, Noah began to be a farmer. I know some of you are really glad of that, of that profession there. Uh, And he planted a vineyard. All right, now this event, when did it occur? Uh, It seems like it occurred right after they stepped off of the ark, but that's not the case. We need to think this out. First of all, if Noah planted a vineyard, how many years would it take for him to get grapes from it? I think it's like three years or so. So time has passed. Now we think of some other things here. We're told later that Shem's firstborn son is is, uh, born two years after the flood. So... If all the the men are beginning to have families at this time, those children have to grow up. Canaan was the fourth son of uh, Ham. So I'm, I'm assuming that probably at least three decades have passed 
because this son has to grow up to the age where he's morally culpable if it's fair for God to put some kind of a curse on him. So we're looking at decades down the road, not the minute they stepped off the ark. Now, as a man of the soil or a farmer, uh, Noah began to do something. Now, we don't see it right here, but that term began is a little bit ominous because it introduces in this situation and then in chapter 10 and chapter 11, other situations, something that's not really very good. Here it introduces uh, the drunken state of Noah. In chapter 10, it introduces the man Nimrod, who became a mighty hunter before the Lord, which really kind of means in the face of the Lord or re- in rebellion to the Lord. And then in chapter 11, uh, it speaks about uh, how the future civilization began to develop Babylon and build the Tower of Babylon. So we have an ominous beginning here that be- looks innocent, but it ends up not being innocent at all. And uh, Noah, as a farmer, he begins uh, with his other responsibilities to uh, develop a vineyard. And it seems like viticulture and viniculture would have been present in the pre-Diluvian, uh, pre-diluvian world. And that Noah continues that practice in the new world. But something bad happens as a real result of that in verse 21. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now, in the Bible, wine is spoken of both positively and negatively. And there are also many warnings that are associated with it. For instance, the servants of the temple, those taking a vow, and people in leadership positions were not supposed to drink of the vine. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, we're told, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In the New Testament, Paul writes, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with his spirit. And Haggai warned his people uh, a very serious warning, not Haggai, but I think Habakkuk, Uh, Woe to the person who gives his neighbor wine so he can look upon his nakedness. So there's a connection there with what we see going on here. Now, in its very first mention of the Bible, it's associated with drunkenness, and of course that's condemned in both Testaments. So Noah sinned because he drank too much wine and he lost control of his senses. Furthermore, he becomes overwhelmed by the wine, and he throws off uh, his covering and lays in his tent exposed in this way. Again, we go to the biblical record. Backwards and forwards, nakedness is associated with shame, vulnerability, and debauchery. And the first realization of Adam and Eve after they fell into sin was their nakedness, and that there was something wrong with this, and they tried to cover themselves up, so they felt the the, the shame and the guilt over that condition. So there are two degrading results of Noah's excess 
and moral laxity, their drunkenness and nakedness, which God condemns in his law. Now, this reminds us of something, that no matter how great a saint you may be, you can fall into sin and serious sin. Noah let down his moral guard for some reason, which led him to this. He was deceived, perhaps by how much he thought he could imbibe and not get drunk, but he went way too far. And how many millions of people today have been likewise deceived, and they fall into deeper sin because they've been drunk? Of course, we could go through a whole lot of statistics, but just let me give you one. Every day, 28 people in our country die as a result of DUI incidents. How much domestic violence is due to inebriation? And the list could go on and on and on. So it's certainly something that we have to be very concerned about. We have to realize that our sinful actions impact not only ourselves, but others. As we see this impacted the sons of Noah. So let's look then at their response to their father's moral laxity in the next couple of verses. And again, we're reminded here that we have a responsibility to properly respond to incidents of moral abandonment, moral laxity, uh, when we're confronted by it in the world or by other people. And the first thing we, we look at here is how Ham responded in verse 22. And Ham, again, mentioned as the father of Canaan. We know this is leading up to something. Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now we wonder, what's going on here? Uh, What did Ham do that brought up uh, upon his descendants such a far-reaching negative effect? We only have 12 words that provide us any information. And they're not real specific. And a lot of uh, commentators have have taken this much farther, I think, than it needs to go. I'm not going to really explain different views here. But let's take a look at what happened. First of all, Ham, for whatever reason, goes into the tent of his father and he saw his naked condition. Now the verb to see here doesn't mean to glance. It doesn't mean a little glimpse. It means to look at something searchingly. So it wasn't uh, something innocent. It could have been. It could have turned around and gone right back out. But it was a purposeful stare. And it suggests to us voyeurism, taking advantage of his father's vulnerability, staring upon that Shameful condition. One commentator put it this way. Voyeurism in general violates another's dignity and robs that one of his or her instinctive desire for privacy and propriety. It's a form of domination. 
And if this would ever have happened to any of us, we would have been highly embarrassed by that. And in our society, it's, it's pre- predatory in nature. It's punishable uh, as a crime in certain situations. I heard not too long ago, somebody in Geneva, some fellow in Geneva, was arrested for this kind of thing because they were taking pictures of of children and uh, young people, and they find these all over the place in the house, the computer, things of that nature. So that's a crime. And in our decadent society, it's hard for us to understand uh, how... um, important this was in a negative way back in the history of humanity. We are so used to seeing nakedness, we don't even think about it anymore. It's everywhere. Uh, it's, it's on the TV, it's on movies, it's, you go to the beach, and well, maybe you can't even go to the beach anymore if you're a man. There's just so much of it. It's so prevalent, we wonder, well, what was the big deal? But in ancient society, especially among the Hebrews, this was a great shame. To look upon one's nakedness abandoned a moral code, and it displayed the highest level of disrespect, especially for a family member. And who knows what hidden sins this brought out in him. Had he been resentful of his father's righteousness? Had he seen the example and just kind of my, my dad's so holy, it just makes me sick. Uh, was he glad to catch his father in a state of inebriation, knowing that he wasn't in control of his senses, and thinking, ah, oh, finally, I can see my dad doing something wrong. His voyeurism dishonored his father, and his failure to do anything about it, to cover him up, deepened his disrespect. And no matter what his motivation may have been, there was sinful culpability attached to what he saw. Furthermore, we're told here that he went out, he told his two brothers outside. And that adds to his transgression, because the verb to tell means to declare to make known, to make conspicuous, to get it out there. One commentator said it displayed outspoken delight at his father's indisposition. Instead of keeping quiet about the situation, he made it known as soon as possible. And sometimes we're tempted to do the same thing. We find out some Christian did something wrong. We don't cover it up or not mention it. We spread it all over the place as well. Now Ham goes out of the tent and seems to make light of this to his brothers, maybe trying to convince them to participate in the situation and and make a joke of it, perhaps making fun of their father's laxity. Hey, guys, you need to see Dad. Boy, did he mess up. And in this way, he failed to honor his father, which later became a capital offense in the law of God. And the response of Shem and Japheth is in sharp contrast to this. We're seeing something in the, in the character of Ham that was condemnable. Now, let's take a look at how the other two sons 
handle the situation. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. All right. So they took a garment. This is interesting because the article, the definite article is before garment, which means they took the garment. So does that indicate that adding to the sin of Ham, he actually, instead of covering his father with a garment, takes it outside. Hey, guys, look at this. And they take the garment, which they know is their father's, and they put it between their shoulders. So if they did, when they backed in, look inward towards, they wouldn't be able to see anything because they put the garment up there. But then it goes on to say that they didn't do that. They looked the other way. They turned the other way. So they came in backwards. Then they turned their faces the other way. So either way, they can't look upon their father. And they draw the carpet, uh, the garment over them so they cannot see. So just the opposite of what Ham does. And so in this action, they show their love, their respect their compassion for their father, even though he had shamed himself in this way. They're not going to take advantage of that. And the description of the son's reaction begins with Ham, first of all, seeing. That's the word that begins this section. And then it ends with Japheth and Shem not seeing. That's the last word. Not in our English Bible, but in the Hebrew. So Shem, or excuse me, Ham sees, and he does so purposely. The two other brothers do not see, and they do not see purposely. And so they protect the honor of their father. And each face accountability for how they handled this situation, and they receive a consequent curse or blessing. Now let's see what develops from all of this. Verses 24 to 27 is Noah's oracle on his son's responses. And here again, our actions are going to result in something. They're going to result in blessing or they're going to result in cursing. Something good or something evil is going to come. And we find in verse 24 that a curse comes upon Canaan. Now, verse 24 says, So Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. So Ham is the younger son, youngest son. And he wakes up. We're not sure how he found this information, maybe intuitively. Maybe his other two sons came to him and and told him about the incident because they were so upset with their brother. But whatever, when he wakes from his stupor, he gets sober again. He finds out what happens. And imagine how he must have felt. I'm sure he was embarrassed. I'm sure he was angry at himself. I'm sure he knew he didn't do the right thing. I'm sure he felt ashamed, hopefully the way we feel when we sin. But also he was angry that one of his sons dishonored him and took advantage of his imposition. 
And the result is a curse upon the descendants of that son. And verse 25. Then he, Noah, said, Cursed be Canaan. Now in the garden, God is the one who delivered the curse on the serpent, on the ground, which affected Adam and Eve. He did not curse Adam and Eve. Now here, Noah is exercising a curse. Noah cannot bring about an effect of that curse. He can't cause it to come about. Only God can do that. So in a sense, his curse is prophetic depending upon God to bring it into being. And it eventually becomes uh, something related to a future condition that will be realized in the descendants of Canaan. And we'll see that in chapter 10. Now, here's a question. Do you wonder why Canaan was cursed, the son of Ham, when it doesn't appear like Canaan had anything to do with it? So why did he say cursed be Ham? Well, really, it's difficult to answer that. But it may be that Noah was aware of the sinful propensities in his son Ham that may have intensified in his grandson Canaan. Because there has to be some kind of relationship between the father and the son. Or else the son would not have been named in the curse. And this is often the case in families. The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children for several generations. And the sins don't lessen, they deepen. They get worse. They intensify. And this is perhaps what Noah was understanding in his intuition and observation as a father of his sons and grandsons now. And this brings it all out into the open. And so the curse comes upon the next generation, and that eventually will come to many generations later on. Noah's oracle is not so much geared to the immediate situation as to the future. And according to chapter 10, we find that Canaan becomes the father of all the tribes that will occupy the land of Canaan, which God will destroy through Israel and give to them as an inheritance. And the reason he does that is because the Canaanites are so debauched, they need to be wiped out. And so we see this this, uh, relationship between him, then his son, and then his son's sons and sons on down the line till you get so bad that that society needs to be reduced to nothing. If we were to go to Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 3, the Lord exhorts Israel with these words. And this is, again, as they're getting ready to go into that land of Canaan. He says, according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, 
you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. And then the rest of the chapter lists all kinds of immoralities associated with what? Guess what? Nakedness. Uncovering someone in a sensual way. So this relates it then to the original sin of Ham who looked upon his father's nakedness. And that sin intensifies and intensifies and worsens until it reaches the point where a whole society, a whole nation is morally abandoned. Well, what then is the curse? The curse is slavery. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And that's the only phrase, a servant of servants, we find in the whole Bible. So that means he's going to be under the control, under the domination of the progeny of Shem and Japheth in some way. So how, how are we to interpret this? Well, there are those historically who have believed that this applies to the black ethnic groups that were under bondage for so many years in history. However, the problem with that is that Canaan was not the progenitor of those groups. Another son of Ham was. So we have to pretty much throw that out. And then you look at history itself. History is full of the evil of slavery. No matter what ethnic group, one nation conquers another nation, they put that nation into servitude, then they get uh, destroyed and they put, got put in uh, to servant, uh, servitude. So we really can't look at it in that kind of a broad picture. It's better to focus this curse on the relationship of Shem and Japheth and their future progeny to Ham Canaan and Canaan's future progeny. From Shem came the Semites, and Israel is then the offspring of Shem. Uh, God will use Israel to drive out the Canaanites from the land of promise. They won't do that completely successfully. But then the sea people... Enter the picture, the Philistines from Kaphtor, the tribes from the north, they all are derived from Japheth. So Japheth is going to be in the future involved in this humbling of the Canaanites. And God will use them to drive them out. And even then, there will not be a complete wiping out of the Canaanite tribes until the Battle of Carthage in 149 B.C. But you see, there's this constant battling, moving forward, and subjugating of a morally uh, debauched people. And I think we can also derive a moral and spiritual truth from all of this as well. Those who reject the God of Noah and persist in their sinful ways, are cursed. They're under a curse. They're enslaved to their moral depravity, and they cannot escape from it. 
And evidence of this enslavement are drunkenness and nakedness, and they're often associated with sexual perversion and moral abandonment. And a nation whose people are largely characterized by this is spiritually Canaanite. And they will incur the curse of God upon their sin. So there's a moral truth that carries along uh, with this, as well as the generational curse that will move forward from this point. Now, conversely, in the last couple verses here, we have a blessing on Seth and on Japheth for their action in this situation. They prove their... um, Uh, moral integrity by what they did and their respect for their father by what they did. He goes on to say, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord Jehovah, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So here we have Noah projecting the blessing not directly to Shem, but to the Lord. And note the Lord Yahweh, the personal God, the covenant God. Now this also may be a play on Shem's name. Shem's name means name, the name. So if you read it out that way, this is what it would look like. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of the name. And think of all that that name means throughout the history of God's revelation And this is now associated with a blessing that comes upon Shem. Shem's God is Yahweh. Shem's God is the name above all names. And that's what he's associated with. That's his blessing in all this. It also indicates to us the the selection now of the chosen promised seed that was back in Genesis 3.15. We know it comes down to Noah. But now we know that that's passed on to Shem, the Semites, the Hebrews, and it's going to lead us up to chapter 12, Abraham. All right. Now we come to Japheth, and Japheth is blessed with enlargement. May God, note here, not Yahweh, not the name Yahweh, the personal name Uh, that will follow the seed, but God, may God enlarge Japheth. So Japheth is not of the promised seed, but God's going to bless him anyways. He's going to bless him with enlargement. Here again, we have a play on words. If you were able to say Japheth's name in Hebrew, it would sound the same as the word enlarge. Okay, so he's kind of emphasizing the name of Japheth and the promise that he will enlarge Japheth in some way. And as we look at the, uh, the future uh, generations uh, in chapter 10, and we look at the world today, that God has enlarged the offspring of Japheth. This indicates that his people and his lands will be enlarged. He is the progenitor of many Gentile nations today, which dominate the world scene. 
But his greatest blessing derives from his close association with his brother Shem, because it says here, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, whose God is Yahweh. That's where the greatest blessing is. We know that Jesus the Christ will eventually come as the fulfillment of the promise of the seed. And when the church is formed as a result of that, and it begins to expand, who receives the greatest blessing? Israel becomes far outnumbered by the Gentiles, by the Japhethites, the Greeks, the Romans, the Ephesians, the Galatians, eventually the Europeans, and guess what? The Americans. They all derive from this promise of enlargement and they dwell in the historic roots of Shem's tents, even today. Well, that leads us to the end of the story, the epilogue. Verse 28. Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950. That was a pretty ripe old age. But note the last three words, and he died. The wages of sin is death, and even the best of saints cannot avoid it. And so that picks up the godly line back in chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Noah's the last one, and he dies as well. So as we close today, let's reiterate some abiding truths. First of all, Noah is one of the greatest saints who ever lived. He's named as such by, I believe, the prophet Ezekiel with, uh, with um, I think, Daniel and uh, Abraham, maybe, maybe Moses. I can't remember which three it is. But here we have a story of his fall. For some reason, he let down his moral guard. He got drunk. It reminds us that we too fall, that we must be vigilant, that we must trust God every day to help us stay on the narrow path of righteousness. No matter who you are, you're going to fall if you don't. Then our life will impact others for good or evil. Ham's sinfulness was revealed in his response to his father's laxity. His uncontrolled propensities were intensified in his son, which eventually evolved into a people characterized by such moral abandonment they had to be destroyed. They became enslaved by moral perversion that has to be judged by God. So a failure to repent of sin and turn to God, which is what Ham should have done and his son should have done, they move in the other direction and they get worse and worse and worse and the, the negative affects future generations. The same can be true of us today. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, we have an effect on them over time by the way we live, by the way we act. And then we see that our reactions to moral perversity will result in a blessing or a cursing. 
If we fail to repent and turn to Christ, we remain under a curse similar to Canaan. It's the curse of sin, which is death, physically and spiritually and eternally. So our sin may not be the same or related to that of Noah or Ham, but whatever it is, and we don't repent and turn to the Lord, it's under God's curse, and it will be fulfilled. And then finally this morning, Shem and Japheth showed an act of respect for their father, and they obeyed the fifth commandment before it was ever written. Our obedience to God's moral code is evidence of our conversion, our faith in Christ as our Savior, and the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. And the result of obedience will be blessing upon our life and victory over the grip of sin. So let's be thankful for that. Now let's just go to the Lord and close out with some thoughts and prayers. As we close today, I want you to just close your eyes and put yourself in a place where it's you and God alone. Would you do that? Let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. Don't think of the person next to you but just you and God. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you about something in this passage today. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you about how your life can impact others for good or evil. And maybe you think today, you know, Lord, I haven't been really doing a great job of that. I need your help. I need your strength. Maybe you're here today and you've had some problems in your own life. Maybe related to Noah, or maybe the Lord's touched some other nerve, spiritually speaking. And you can say, Lord, I don't want anything in my life negative that can impact me, that can cause your anger with me or somebody else that I love. Help me to give that to you, to overcome it, to walk with you. If the Lord has spoken to you about something and you'd like me to include you in the closing prayer, just slip your hand up. Nobody else is looking around, nobody else is paying attention, yes. Lord, help me be the kind of person that I ought to be. I, I know my life can affect many others down the line. I need your help, I need your grace. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure of your relationship to the Lord. You don't know what's going to happen to you. And you may not be in your own mind as bad as the Canaanites ended up being, but you know you're a sinner. You know you need God's forgiveness and you've really never come to the place in your life where you said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm, I'm under the curse. I know if I died today, I'm not sure where I would be. And you just want to ask the Lord to forgive you, to be your Savior, to be your Lord. Maybe there's someone here today like that. We could pray for you. If you just slip your hand up, anyone at all. 
Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful for how it convicts us of sin. And we're thankful, Lord, that although Noah slipped up on this occasion, we're pretty sure that he made things right. And Lord, that for the many years that you gave him after this, he was again a righteous, upright man because he was trusting in you. Unfortunately, he had to see the sin in others develop and perhaps how he may have added to that. Lord, help us to realize that we need to put our faith and trust in you to help us to be what we ought to be, that we can't do it on our own. We need your strength. We're thankful, Lord, for the example of Shem and Japheth, how they honored their parents, how they stood for moral uprightness, how that they would not look upon the vulnerability of another. And we pray, Lord, you help us to be like them. And we're thankful that even today that uh, we, uh, we dwell in the tents of Seth because we worship the God of the Old Testament. So, Lord, bless us and help us to serve you through this coming week, even as these men did. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.